podcast about the how, what, and why of B2B content marketing. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. I'm Jeremy Shear. The show is brought to you by Conversa, a digital content agency that helps you create a month's worth of premium content in just 60 minutes. So as a B2B marketer in 2023, is it better to play it safe and not take risks or... Is it better to be bold and adventurous and break new ground? Now, I'm guessing that most of our listeners and probably most B2B marketers generally would say that, hell yeah, it's best to take risks and be bold. But apparently that's easier said than done because so much B2B content out there quite clearly copies what's already out there. All the the blog posts look the same. A lot of the video clips look the same. So in other words... There's a lot of playing it safe. And so I think it's worth thinking about, you know, what not playing it safe looks like. Like, how do you do that? And why is it worth the risk? So my guest today is John Miller. John is founder and president of the content marketing agency Scribewise and author of the book, Playing It Safe Sucks, a manifesto for courageous marketing. John. Jeremy, thanks a ton for having me. Good talking to you. All right. So let's jump right in. What's your main argument in the book? What's your thesis? The thesis is that I think as marketers and B2B, we often talk a good game, but our actions don't necessarily reflect that. And there's a lot of pressure internally in our organizations, internally in our own psyches to play it safe, right? Taking a chance is difficult. You're putting yourself out in front. You're saying, take your best shot to the world. And your CFO and your head of sales and your CEO might not love it. And the marketplace might disagree if you take a contrarian take. But all of the brands that we always talk about admiring took chances. They did something bold somewhere along the way. And the ones that truly persevere and endure are the ones that continually innovate forward. And that can mean lots of different things. But... It's hard to create an organizational mindset uh, about being a a courageous marketer. Uh, It's hard to be a courageous organization in general, but when it comes to marketing, it's hard to be courageous. There's a lot of things holding us back. And there's a lot of things in the human psyche that are holding us back. And so the book Playing It Safe Sucks is a, a bit of a rant and an exhortation to marketers to do something great. So I'm in Philadelphia. I grew up around Philadelphia. And my favorite athlete growing up was Julius Irving, who was, you know, without Julius Irving, there's no Michael Jordan. So he he was that, he was Michael Jordan before Michael Jordan. And someone once asked him, how did you get to be this good? And he said, and this, and at the time I was like, man, that is so arrogant. But his quote was, because I dared to be great. When I, as I grew up, I was like, that is, that is exactly what we're here to do in our jobs. The timing has to be right in your career, in your organization, et cetera. But dare to be great is really what the book is about. And I think as marketers is what we're called to do. I love that. As a huge basketball fan, of course, (laughs) the doctor, Dr. J. I mean, what a great reference. And you're right. He was kind of, you know, MJ before MJ. And I think it's worth mentioning, by the way, that he started his career in the ABA, Right. right? Not the NBA, the ABA, this upstart kind of crazy league that is actually kind of germane to our discussion. I'm sort of glad you brought this up because 
definitely the ABA, like if you know anything about it, it dared to be different and was very bold. You know, it had that uh, red, white, and blue ball. It invented the three-point line. It played a much looser and kind of like, quote unquote, street style of ball. Agreed. And ultimately, it didn't, I mean, it didn't succeed and it did. Like some of the teams were absorbed into the NBA, right? Including... Dr. J, he was the biggest star by far, and he went and he was absorbed, and you know, he ended up playing for Philly. But I think my point is that the ABA changed the NBA when it when those teams joined, it forever changed what the NBA as we know it, and like the modern NBA as we know it is due in a lot of ways to the influence of the ABA. So I think that's and I think I think that's you're right on, and it infuriated the purists when it came out. A three-point shot, yeah. a red, white, and blue ball. Are you kidding? Have some decorum, for God's sakes. And it was bold, and it was a risk. And that's the, the other thing with greatest marketing is it might fail. Yeah. And so you have to be at a spot. Like, I don't want to just say, do something crazy, people, and then have everybody get fired. Like, that's not what this is about. This is about creating a framework <laughs> which is a painstaking process that enables you to shift your organizational mindset and your marketing department's mindset or your agency's mindset to do something that you know you're going to take some slings and arrows, but you believe it. And, and I think the core of this is all about we believe this is not just a contrarian play. This is something that we believe, and therefore we're going to stand by it when people do dispute it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, another distinctive Philly thing, Philly boxers, Mm -hmm. that hard-headed style of boxing and just relentless, you know, unrelenting. I think that's germane, too, in that if you're going to take a risk and be bold in whatever you're doing in marketing, you have to fight for that. You can't just sort of put it out there and be like, please like my bold, you know, initiative. You got to stand behind it and kind of, you know, stake. Well, and like the, the great quote from boxing is from a Brooklyn boxer, Mike Tyson, who everybody knows which is everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. So if you're going to do courageous marketing, which we obviously advocate, it's not just off the cuff. You have to build a plan and a defense to a certain extent so that you are prepared to get punched in the face. You're prepared for a week into it when the VP of sales says, where the hell are all our leads? And you're saying, we're playing the long game or whatever it is. You, you, built up the gravitas, built up the internal support, and you're, you're able to stand your ground. Because a big part of it is standing your ground when things go awry. Yeah, right. and they will. Of course. And they, they definitely will go awry. Or, or they'll, something will happen that wasn't part of the original plan, like the great philosopher Mike Tyson says. <laughs> so I think we all, know, we all know what safe marketing looks like. It's all over the place. But what is, what is what is courageous marketing actually look like? Because we've been talking in kind of theoretically. I want to bring it down to like grounded examples. So what are we actually talking about? Like what are some examples of marketing that's bold and One courageous? of the examples in the book is, and it is, it's a relatively old example to be fair, but a friend who a lot of your audience I'm sure has heard of is a guy named Michael Brenner, who's one of the first content marketers. He's in the Content Marketing Hall of Fame if there is such a thing. But he worked at SAP and SAP, you know, huge behemoth, not prone to experiment in their marketing necessarily. And he got there and I forget what his title was. I have it in the book, but his, his mission when he first got there was to basically do an internal 
um, investigation into what was working. And he found one person who was doing something completely different from everybody else, which was thought leadership and content marketing. This is in like 2006 when no one used the phrase content mm -hmm. marketing. And he said, why are we spending all of our budget going to trade shows and buying a box at a football game or whatever it might be? Because this person is, her ROI is five to one and everybody else is negative. And he brought his findings to his boss and his boss disagreed, said, no, we're not doing that. And he said, but the data, but the data, but the data. And so he ultimately got entree and an invitation to basically do an experiment. And he did an experiment and he mined the data all along and he grew it and he grew it and he grew it. And he turned out to have, you know, a multi-million dollar budget that brought in millions of dollars for SAP. But he did all of his homework and he didn't just, he didn't give up. He kept pushing the rock up the hill and he kept reporting on his success. Like that was a key part of it was... And I think as marketers, a lot of times, you know, we're not necessarily math folks, but he paid attention to the numbers and he didn't shirk that responsibility. To me, that's a great example in the B2B world. It's not just an analogy. It's what someone did at a huge company that was risk averse and it worked and you know, basically bet his career on it. Mm hmm. Wow, that's super interesting. And it underscores, I think, what you were saying before about, you know, you have to back this stuff up. Like, this isn't about just, here's a crazy idea. Let's just do it and see what happens and come what may. It's like, no, it's, there's a lot of planning, a lot of careful work, a lot of monitoring right. that, that goes into it. It's not, it's not a haphazard kind of throw shit at the wall and see what happens kind of thing. Right, it can't be. We live in the attention economy. You can get attention by doing crazy stuff. But in B2B, a lot of our clients, a lot of your listeners and viewers and, and B2B companies have long sales cycles. It's a complex sale and they're, you know, selling a big software platform or service and with the intention that the customer is going to stick around for a long time. You're not selling a pair of socks. You need to have a trust-based relationship if it's going to be a long-term relationship. So you want to get attention, yes, but the attention has to build trust. It can't just be, since we've talked about sports, and this, once upon a time in a different lifetime, this person actually worked for me, and I'm just going to, Stephen A. Smith on ESPN can get you some attention. Oh, really? I love Stephen. Yeah. I don't know if I trust his opinions because I know they're going to change next week. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> I, I think that it, it really boils down to, building trust. Trust always comes before a sale. You have to maintain the trust throughout the relationship. We're building relationships. We're not selling widgets. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. You mentioned thought leadership a little bit ago in the example you gave, which at the time apparently was like this new concept, this new thing to do. That term gets thrown a lot around a lot these days. I think you guys, Scribewise, on your website, in my opinion, you have some really interesting examples of thought leadership type content. Thank At least you. that's how I'm reading it. And one of them is called the SEO delusion. So it's this pretty lengthy piece, like very interestingly designed piece about SEO. And you take what I think I would call like a very contrarian take on SEO. You're definitely making an argument that for sure, people like SEO experts would probably have a problem with. So you're kind of poking that bear. And let's focus on that for a bit, because I think that's a pretty good example of what we might call 
courageous marketing. So first, just describe the piece and again, like what you're doing there, like what your thesis is in that piece. Sure. So, so the, the form factor of it is something we call a story stream, which is a long scrolling page. Somebody coined the term scrolly telling a couple of years ago, which I think is good. And some of my team think is mm. kind of hokey, but it's a long page with some animation and some activity. And it's just a more energetic way to tell a story in our opinion. So the SEO delusion, the premise of it is everybody is obsessed with their website traffic. Everybody talks about SEO and pays a lot of attention to it. And you don't need to. In most instances, I know there's, there's exceptions, right? The example I used before, if you're selling socks, you probably need SEO because it's a very transactional, brief transactional relationship. But in the longer term relationship that most businesses, most B2B businesses are looking for, website traffic does not equate to revenue. It doesn't equate to trust. Oftentimes it's trying to outsmart the search algorithms. I had an SEO tell me years ago that the, he said, the idea that my five person SEO shop is going to outsmart the hundred PhDs at Google working on this day in, day out is kind of ludicrous, right? And what Google wants and the other search engines want is for the searcher to have a great experience, to find exactly what they're looking for. And yet we spend all this time trying to trick the engine. And there's obviously some very basic things you need to do. And we advocate for doing those things. But the amount of time and effort and brain power and brain or attention people pay to SEO to me is completely out of proportion. It completely wags the dog. So we built this piece that basically okay. says you don't need SEO as you're deluding yourselves into this. What your website should be for is validation, not volume, because the way people buy today is they find stuff, social media ads, whatever it might be. They stumble across it. They engage with it. We all know this, right? It's somewhere between 65 and 80% of the buyer's journey happens before we know they're looking, before they know they're looking. They're probably not even looking yet. Only 1% of people are in market at any given time. So they're just, you're educating and entertaining them and building trust. It's like, oh, these are smart people. And then they finally come to your website. And that's when you have to validate whether or not you know what you're talking about. So that's the premise of the piece. And it was a long held belief that we finally were able to articulate. And then we actually have a blog post on our site from 10 months ago or so calling ourselves out for not being courageous enough around it because we spent a lot of time putting it together, came up with a fairly clever name, the SEO delusion, but we chickened out and we didn't spend enough time distributing it, time and money distributing it. And in, in retrospect, SEO delusion is probably a little bit too cute. Like you get it, but you have to think about it. And we should have just said SEO is bullshit. And mm. that would have ticked off some people and they would have had good arguments, but this is our argument and we should have made our argument more forcefully. So it was courageous to a point, but it was not courageous enough. So, you know, we got to do better next time. Interesting. We'll put a link to this piece in the show okay. notes. And, and I really encourage people to check it out. From an outsider's perspective, it's interesting to hear you say that because I think it's a damn good piece and does seem quite courageous. You. And, you know, I think one of the benefits of making that kind of bold argument, and I should say not just bold, but reasoned. The reason, I think the reason that I found it so compelling is because you're making an argument. You're not just saying SEO sucks or it's stupid or it's bullshit. You're explaining why you think that. Right and backing it up with data. Right. 
so that's what I found so compelling. I found myself reading through and being like, oh, uh-huh, uh-huh, oh, yeah, interesting, right. And, you, like, you persuaded me. Okay, good. And that, to me, I'm like, that's not leadership. That's, you're leading. You know what I mean? Like, you're putting a new idea out there and actually making a case for it, which, to me, is sort of the essence of thought leadership. But to make that work, you need to have those contrarian kind of bold ideas, right? And you said that this was something that you, and, and maybe you, you meant the plural you, like you and your team had thought for a while, but like, how did you come to this conclusion? Where did this take on SEO come from? Uh, just years of experience, honestly, like just looking at it and saying, does that really mm. matter? And seeing the tricks. Now, a lot of those tricks are old. It was, you know, 10, 15 years ago when people were doing things like black type on the black space and that stuff doesn't really work anymore. Uh, and I don't think many people do that. But the genesis of SEO is trickery. And it, which, which made a lot more sense, I think, in 2006, probably. But we talk so much about authenticity and SEO is generally not very authentic. So it's largely based in trickery. And if you're creating really good content and a fair, you know, quality and quantity, and it's audience focused and it's helpful to your audience or entertaining to your audience, Google will reward you, right? The SEO mantra over the last couple of years is like, well, the articles have to be 1500 words or more. That's stupid. That is backwards thinking. The reason articles that are the longer that get the most traffic are because they're extremely well done, well-written, thoughtful pieces that yeah. are research-backed oftentimes. It can't just be gibberish where you're rambling on. That's bad writing. Nobody wants that. Marketing is an art and a science, but don't forget the art. And if you do too much science, yeah. you're negating the art. If you do too much art, you're negating the science. But we have to find that line. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Like I, I spent some time several months ago going back to some blog posts I'd written and using a tool on in, in my WordPress website that gives you like an SEO mm -hmm. score. And it was like, this blog post has this low score. You need to do these 10, 15 things or whatever. And for sure, one of them was make it longer. So I was like, okay. <laughs> but I ended up, you know, you end up adding, it, it's not even necessarily bad writing. Like, you can add stuff that's well-written, but that's kind of irrelevant, right. you know, which overall degrades the quality of the piece, in my opinion. And I found myself adding just like background and context that I didn't add it in the first place because it wasn't strictly necessary. Right. I only added it because the SEO AI God was telling me, if you don't do that, we're not going to give you right. the bigger score. I was like, okay, I want the bigger score. I'm going to add a bunch of stuff. And then I added it. And I read it over and I was like, this isn't <laughs> good, but the score is right. better. So something is it's weird here. It's a false scoreboard, Yoast or whatever it is, right? It's, it's yeah. like, like, why are we trying to please that God? We should be trying to please our customer. We, we can un start to understand our future customer's behavior based upon the way they interact with our website and what they look at and how much of the page they consume. But we also, if we're good marketers, we know in our gut what they want, right? Like we're not getting paid to be mechanics. We're being paid to be people who understand how to do this. So there has to be some experience and some gut level instinct that comes into play. Should you look at all the numbers? Sure. Should you do exactly what they say? No, that's our opinion. And to go back to your, you know, is it a courageous take or not? The SEO delusion. It is certainly something that a lot of folks would disagree with, 
that's kind of the point too. Like you have to be comfortable with people disagreeing with you because I don't need the whole world to agree with me. I want to work with people who are like-minded, not just that agree with us, you know, but that challenge us, et cetera. But we want to work with people who that's the right approach. Like we, we work mostly with middle market B2B companies, which we define as usually between 10 and a hundred million in revenue. So if you have $25 million in revenue and you sell some type of SaaS platform, we work with one client in uh, deep, like it's almost, it's aftermarket supply chain. It doesn't make sense when you get into it now, but like, that's a very intricate business. When we started working with them, they had 40 customers, very lucrative customers. They don't need 4,000 customers. They couldn't handle 4,000 customers. Let's find the next five or 10, right? How do we do that? So account-based marketing, building trust, fueling the, the sales conversations, thinking about that, the entirety of that buyer's journey and creating content along that, that's our goal. Website traffic is just a, we all know it's a vanity metric and yet we still pay attention to it. So that's really what we were talking about with the SEO delusion. What kind of feedback have you gotten from that piece or pushback? We've gotten a lot of agreement. We've gotten very little pushback, which tells me exactly that we didn't push hard enough. Mm. And I have some friends who are a little more SEO folks and they're like, oh, what was the feedback you got? And they didn't necessarily want to say, they like, challenge me, please. But we got, you know what? I think we got a little bit lazy. We're just like, I don't want to spend my day fighting online with SEOs. <laughs> and you need to be prepared. Like you, can, you can't spend 40 hours a week doing that clearly, but you need to be prepared to have your argument lined up if you're going to do courageous marketing. But it is interesting that you got a lot of agreement, which suggests that you kind of struck a nerve with, you know, at least some part of your audience that you, this intuition that you had about SEO or like, you know, your, your idea based on experience lines up pretty well with how a lot of people are beginning to think about SEO or like they're feeling about it. It is interesting. A lot of people said, you know, I kind of had this nagging thought, but you articulated it, which yeah. is a good spot to be in. So we should have pushed it harder. We still should. <laughs> so yeah, we still, still can. can. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. So, so I think we've identified that one way to create, to be bold in your marketing is to create content that cuts against the grain, you know, has a contrary opinion, not just, not just for the sake of being contrary or controversial, but something you actually really believe uh -huh. And that oftentimes this comes from experience and maybe there's some data, but a lot of it is kind of a gut feeling. You said this nagging feeling and it's something that a lot of people maybe kind of feel, but you're like, we're going to put this in words. We're going to put a flag on the ground and make a claim and defend it. For listeners out there that are like, hell yeah, we want to do that. Is there like a, a system or a method you can use to generate those kind of ideas or do they just come and you have to grab them as they come to you? In the book, we, we discuss a framework for going about this, but at the same time, it can't be prescriptive, or at least I can't figure out how to make it prescriptive and say, do these seven steps and you'll be there because the, there are variables that I don't know, which are what is your personality, kind of your own risk tolerance? What ideas do you have? What is your business? What is your organizational mindset and appetite for, you know, shaking, rocking the boat, so to speak? All of those things you need to, you need to think about and determine. 
Like Michael Brenner banged his head against the wall for a while. And then he found one person who said, let's, you know what, there might be something here. Let's give it a whirl. You got six months and a small budget. And, you know, and he was, did it with duct tape and hustled his butt off and kept score all along the way. So he, you know, he did a little experiment. I mean, I think doing little experiments is good. You don't need to get the Barbie movie budget out of the gate. If you can, God bless you. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> but you're right. not, you know, you're just not going to. So, so, but can you do a small experiment? Can you do, like, if we're talking thought leadership, we've done, we have done this with some clients, like in the insurance business, basically they call their salespeople producers. Some of, some folks know that, um, but you have a young producer who's 24 years old. They don't have a book of business. How are they supposed to start generating business? Can we do a thought leadership campaign around them? We call it executive activation on LinkedIn. It's just frequent posting on LinkedIn, thought leadership oriented, building up their profile, extending their reach. And then we had one person at one of our clients who, you know, at the start of the year had like virtually nothing, no business. And by the end of the year was going to the president's club in the islands. So. And it's not, it's, it wasn't just us, but we gave them the tools. So that was just a one person experiment and it can work. You know, figure out your experiments. You have to really assess who you are as an organization. That's the starting point. What are your values? Does this align with your values? You have to build support internally. All of those things are really important. You can't just fly off half cocked. You know, I think for me, some of my best ideas, I'm putting that in scare quotes because, you know. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it up to others to judge how good the ideas are. But anyway, they often come from a few different things. One, from writing, from creating content. So like you just mentioned, posting on LinkedIn. Just the process of doing that. When you're writing, you're essentially, if you're doing it the right way, I think, you're, you're thinking. You know, to write is to right. think, right? And it's, it, it's not necessarily you know exactly what you think and then you write it down. You develop your thinking as you're writing. And that's why you do multiple drafts right. and things. And the other one is conversation, which is thinking out loud. When you're a really good conversation, open-ended with a smart person and digging into a topic in the spirit of let's explore this. Let's learn something right. new. How are different ways of thinking about it? That's when that can spark all kinds of interesting insights. And I know I've had instances, I think, I'm sure a lot of people have when you're deep in conversation, and then you say a thing, and you're like, wait a minute, what did I just say? That Hold on, exactly. I need to write that down. <laughs> it comes out, and you're not even, you don't even know where it came right. from, but you're like, whoa, that's, that's an interesting way of putting that. And the fact that you have to write it down means it's new to you, even though you yeah. just said it. You know what I mean? So there's something about just writing, having the, these kind of intense conversations. I think that's where a lot of discovery happens, where you can allow yourself, allow your brain, enable your brain to plumb the depths a little bit and take some chances in your thinking. But you need to put yourself in those situations. What do you think? I agree. And it, it, it makes me think so much about hybrid work. So this is a thing like our team, we have writers, strategists, and designers. Writing is a solitary exercise. And oftentimes writers are introverted but we have to collaborate. We are a creative agency. We are in a creative business. 
we have to collaborate because exactly the, the talking out loud, inventing out loud is vitally important to making something great. There's also a place for people doing that on their own in their own free time, just rambling and writing and bringing an idea to the table that they've thought about for a while. But, you know, there's a million studies on this, right? When people work together, one plus one becomes three. And I had an old boss who was, he was, he was a zealot for brainstorming and he, and there was an agency and everybody was an extrovert. So it was like a party and that's not the team we have here. But at the same time, there are rules around brainstorming. And and it was like, invent out loud, hold all criticism. Those were the two cardinal rules. Like whatever you're thinking, it can bring the stupid ideas out. A good example, one of our folks, we work, so we work with B2B, but we also work with health systems. That's kind of our B2C. So we create a lot of patient focused content, et cetera. And I guess it was two years ago on Valentine's day, you can actually die of a broken heart. It's a thing. It's a medical thing. Mm-hmm. So our, our clients suggest, you know, wanted an article around that. So our folks, you know, we wrote it up and there's science behind it, et cetera. And there's been studies done. Like if you're crushed after a heartbreak, it can literally kill you. And she put into Slack after she was finishing, like, I don't know why, but all day long, I've had that stupid song, achy, breaky heart in my head. And we said, that's the headline. And it went viral. Newspapers in the UK picked it up, like, because <laughs> they pitched it out as a PR piece. So it was just like, it was a stupid thing and it was goofy, but you have to have the safe space that people feel comfortable saying goofy things out loud. That's, that's part of courageous marketing in general is, and creating courageous business is, are people comfortable taking a chance? Like if I say something to you, Jeremy, you're going to say, shut up, that's stupid. Well, then I'm not going to do it next time. But if you say, oh, that's interesting, let's think about that for a while, or it makes you think of something, like that's what we should all be trying to do. I know it's hard, but that's really what we should be trying to do. Yeah, or I, you know, if I'm trying to be a little more businesslike, I might not say that's stupid, but I might say, well, what's the ROI on that? You know, where's the data? Which is another way of shutting things down if they're new, because you don't have any data yet. It's kind of an intuition. But rather than like, no, we don't, you know, we only do things we know are proven to result in X, Y, Z. You're not really creating a space for being bold, I would say. Now that people hide behind business jargon, you you know, I want to sound smart. You sound smarter if you talk like a person. The plain spoken folks are the ones we follow. You certainly, you can end up in a better place, right? Come up with those bold ideas that will allow you to be a courageous marketer. John, thank you so much for this conversation. This was really, really enjoyable. And I think a good demonstration of what a conversation can do. For sure. You know, when, when there's enough space to just kind of chop it up and, and see where it goes. Um, well, thank you so much. So how can people connect with you? What's the best way? Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, which is com slash scribe John Miller. Okay. Well, I'll but, put a link. Uh, yeah, to, we'll I'll put, put a, a link to uh, scribewise.com is our website. We do have a website for the book playing sucks.com. Those are the best ways I'd say. Okay. Awesome. Well, John, thanks again so much for a great conversation. Thanks, Jeremy. Likewise. Great talking to you. That's it for this episode of the B2B content show. You can subscribe anywhere you get podcasts on any podcast app. And while you're at it, you might as well give the show five stars and leave an over-the-top comment about how much you love the podcast. 
If you'd like to be a guest on the show or you know someone who you think would be a great guest, let us know. You can contact me at jeremy at conversa.com. That's C-O-N-N-Versa.com. The B2B Content Show is brought to you by Conversa Podcasting. Check us out at conversa.com to learn more about how we help B2B brands start podcasts to connect through conversation with the buyers and decision makers you need to get to know to grow your business. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.